0: RDI Insights. Mike Dempsey in conversation with Royal Designers. Hello and welcome to the RDI Insights podcast series, where I will be interviewing major figures in the design industry who have been made RSA Royal Designers for Industry, the highest accolade for a designer in the UK. The award was introduced in 1936 to highlight an honour the work of industrial designers for their sustained creative excellence and benefit to society as cities expand with ever more people moving into already overcrowded spaces along with the heat generated by new buildings, can all create an unpleasant and unhealthy environment. But over the past two decades, the role of the landscape architect has risen from the bottom of the pack as an almost afterthought to a key creative component of the built environment, countering the downsides of many developments with an intelligent understanding of nature and green spaces in cities and towns, bringing biodiversity. Into its center and making urban environments healthier and more livable. My guest today has significantly influenced this increasingly crucial environmental dimension. He is a landscape architect, Andrew Grant, RDI. But as you were here, his path to international recognition was long and only brought about by determination, self belief, and hard work that took its toll in the early days of his practice working at home from the kitchen table with a few assistants. But in 2005, he entered a competition against some of the world's most prestigious architects. That project was Gardens by the Bay in Singapore. Andrew invested all of his amassed, pent-up ideas into the competition, which paid off. They won. The result became multi-award winning and featured in news items around the world and the result changed Andrew's life. I opened our conversation by asking Andrew the difference between a landscape architect and a landscape designer.
1: Landscape architecture, I think, is a, it, a very wide-ranging sort of discipline. And it, it covers everything from strategic planning of countries and um, ecosystems and landscape frameworks all the way through to urban design, planning of new cities, restoration of old cities, thinking about design, restoration of parks and gardens. And probably right at the bottom of the list of things that we we do would be garden design. And landscape designers are more associated with smaller scale projects, um, gardens and and the like. Although there are many landscape designers who are... Uh, working on a big, big, bigger scale as well, so it, it crosses over, and it also crosses over with architects because there are many architects who think they're landscape architects, and so there's there's always those sort of challenges of definition. So we all have to we all have to shape our own world and reputation.
0: I think I read a quote either from you or I've imagined it, but it said that your discipline was about building a living architecture world rather than a static one
1: yes i think that's a really good point we're dealing with the, the natural world we're dealing with living systems we're dealing with things that are responding to the geology the climate the rainfall the biodiversity of different places and you know we're creating New environments or reshaping old environments that have to respond to those conditions rather than, as you say, building static
0: new elements with inert materials. Well, we're going to talk about a lot of that a little bit later on, but I thought we would just go back to when you were newly born, a little seed, if you like. <laughs> so you were born in, in 1958 in Withersey, which is a seaside town, isn't it, in Holderness, East Riding, Yorkshire?
1: Yes, absolutely. It's one of the most remote parts of the, of England because of its distance from major roadways. But it was, it was an idyllic sort of uh, childhood. It, I, I was brought up on a farm in the middle of the countryside and in a small village. And, and it was a wonderful
0: sort of experience. Your father, Peter, and your, your mother, Joyce, were they farming folk
1: then? Well, my dad was, he basically was an engineer. He trained as an engineer and he was going off to create sort of innovations in cranes and all sorts of mechanical engineering systems. But his his father died. His father was obviously the, the farmer. And oh. he went back to work on the farm with his brothers after he'd finished his training. So he became the farm mechanic. So he basically fixed everything and mended everything. And, and my mother was looked after us all, really. <laughs>
0: And, and when you say all, you, you have siblings?
1: Uh yes, a brother and a sister. Yeah, uh, my they brothers young? in Australia, and my sister still in in Holderness.
0: Were they younger? Or
1: yes, they're a bit younger. Yeah, we're all quite close, but they're younger than me.
0: So, what are your sort of early memories of of family life, which, as you said at the beginning, is sort of rather idyllic? So, what what, what was paint a little picture for me?
1: Well, uh, I mean, the village was quite. It was very small when when we first evolved there it's probably only two or three hundred people and you get you knew everybody it's one of those sort of places and the farm was fantastic it was a mixed farm so it had everything pigs sheep Cows, turkeys, every type of crop you could imagine. So it was quite unusual as a as a farming enterprise. And, um, you know, from a young age, I would be down working on the farm at the weekends, feeding the animals. And then as I got older, you'd be driving tractors. And it, it was a lot of hard work. And it got me used to the idea of working hard yeah. to get things done. And, you know, it's a, an important lesson, I think.
0: Did you sort of go to the local village school?
1: Yeah, I went to Ruth's primary school, which was, you know... A, a, a tiny little school with three classrooms of uh, I can't remember how many in each 20 or something like that kid. and then I went to Withensee High School which is just four miles down the road by the seaside which had one of the first comprehensive schools in the, in England and it was I, I, I really enjoyed it it was, it was a great experience and uh, introduced me to lots of things that I had never come across in the village or on, on the farm.
0: When did you start to sort of think about an area that you might want to pursue i mean i know that's very young but some you know with so many people that i've interviewed over the years you know there's normally a sort of trigger moment when something happens so did you have any inkling about sort of horticulture or that direction
1: no i was i was very definite i didn't want to go into into the farm i I, i could have i could have followed in my father's footsteps and taken over some of the farming shares but Sitting on a tractor, going up and down a field for nine months a year wasn't wasn't my idea of fun. So, <laughs> I and I, you know, at school I got into. I, although I wasn't a musician, I, I had lots of friends who were really into music, and it was beginning of the era of punk music and those. Oh, sort of things.
0: course, yes, you're right, right in there, aren't you? Because yeah, absolutely.
1: That took me in a direction, and, and you know, I would go off down to London with with a couple of friends peaches and graham and we'd go off and that's a long way do all sorts of extraordinary things. oh it was we'd get on a coach and, and disappear or we'd we'd drive across to, to sheffield and see people like the clash and the likes you know it just opened up a different perspective in terms of what what is life about really
0: at the secondary modern school what sort of subjects were you taken by
1: well i were you
0: very academic
1: i was i was I was reasonably academic, I think. I mean, I was I was quite good at the sciences, and after I'd done my O levels, as it was then, I was I gravitated towards sort of physics, chemistry, biology as as a sort of a, a grounding, which potentially would lead me to something other than (laughs) architecture or landscape architecture. But it was one of those things that I just simply couldn't get on with physics and the maths that went with it. It sort of, I found it really hard. So I I swapped out and I'd always been reasonably good at art. And I asked if I could go back and do art as an A-level. And they allowed me to do that. And I had a fantastic teacher who was very encouraging in terms of you know the potential of what I could do, and he encouraged me to, to sort of not just look at artists, but to look at other aspects of design. And, and one of those was was architecture, right? And uh, I I came across the architect Nervi, who, who worked on some of the most amazing. New buildings in, in Brazil, in Brasilia, sort of the sort of the extraordinary yes. concrete forms that we yes. created. And I just got sucked in. I just thought, this is amazing. And parallel to that, I think probably I was, you know, f- from the music side, I, I was really influenced by Roger Dean and all his illustrations. Oh, yes, yes, if you yes, yes. The I do. Yes, albums and Absolutely, stuff. yes. And he... He had that book, didn't he? That he published around that time, which yep. was just full of the lovely illustrations, which yes. always all had those sort of organic feeling to them, the way they they uh, they worked. So whether that was a trigger moment or not, but certainly there they were very influential characters, I guess, in terms of thinking. Well, what, what do I want to do?
0: Interesting when you say org- organic, because they certainly are very organic. I've pro- Probably brought about by by a lot of LSD, I should think, but but <laughs> yeah. but the 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 sort of Kind of fluidity actually is very much to a certain degree with the way you've you've handled some of your projects, which I, as I said we'll talk about later. But I can see I can see a sort of connection there with that sort of undulating style that he had.
1: Yeah. Well, I, there were two, there were two things about his style that I he he managed to capture in a sort of a graphic, slightly abstract way some of the qualities of of nature and rocks mm. and things like that in particular, but then he pushed push them into, not, well, sci-fi to a certain extent, isn't it? I mean, yeah. it's sort of really, it's unreal. And I like that world. I like I like thinking that we can sort of um, distort our realities a little bit yes. and, and and sort of take people into a different in, in impression of the world around them.
0: I, I assume after your secondary modern school did you get then go on to the the college of art in edinburgh is that
1: yeah that's right i it was one of those things where it was the okay handbook where do i go what am i going to do and as i say i was really interested in architecture but because i didn't have the physics or the maths it Mm. was there were very few courses that would have allowed me to take architecture as an undergraduate at that time and Sort of landscape architecture popped up as, a, as an alternative, given that I had, had sort of swapped out um, physics for for art, and Edinburgh I'd never been to, but I, went, I remember going up there with my dad for the sort of the interview and the experience, and I thought, wow, this is just an extraordinary place compared to this sort of weird little country village (laughs) in the middle of east yorkshire so yeah i was totally i was totally sort of sucked into it so you what um, you
0: would have been about 18 that's yeah 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 yeah. and so you 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 got in you chose your path and you
1: the only undergraduate course at the time at a university that was offering landscape
0: architecture It would only been going for a year before me i think maybe two years so just winding back slightly so when did you discover that that was a vocation you know the landscape architecture was something you wanted to do or was it just oh well this looks like a an interesting avenue rather than
1: i think i, f- I think it was uh, exactly that it was i it sounded interesting mm. it, it, it and and when i went to the the art college and saw that you were mixing with students from all the other disciplines including architects and planners but basically sculptors and yeah. illustrators and fine art, Artist, you know, it just struck me that this is going to be really interesting. But I didn't really have any proper understanding of what landscape architecture was or landscape design. I'd never really studied it in any any way. So that all just fell into place as I, as I continued through the studies.
0: And how did you get on with all of the other eighteen-year-olds there? Because quite often it's a life-changing experience.
1: Yeah, honey, I mean, it was fantastic. I mean, just going back to the music thing, Edinburgh was a fantastic place for music at that time. Of course. You know, had everybody were coming through, and at the, you know, had the student unions, you had a number of clubs and all the rest of it. So that just opened up loads of uh, connections, I guess, and um, fond memories of things like the football team, the right. college football team, which was made up of the most weird assembly of characters if you, you can probably imagine from the era with every type of haircut and color and you know we we had a kit which was sort of non-conformist right
0: Yeah, this so the, this is this is a mid-70s isn't it it's, it's
1: sort of late 70s late 70s, late 70s so yeah. wait
0: what was your attire then your uh,
1: well it was <laughs> Whatever was available, I think, probably. So, there were, you know, there was anybody, you know, people wearing their, their best white shirts all the way through to the scruffy T-shirts with holes in, and but of all different colours and...
0: You talked about music both now and, and earlier. Did you play an instrument? Were you involved um, anyway no, I, in No,
1: I, I tried. I tried right. to, to sort of pick up drumming and, and, and I, I failed miserably. But some of my friends became members of significant bands and I kept in contact with live music through them.
0: And then after Edinburgh... College of Art um I think you were there for what two years were you there two years or three uh,
1: no it, well it was we basically had to shadow the architect so we I was there for four years but then the well I was there for three years then we did a placement year in I did a placement year in Croydon at the property services agency and then I went back to my final year in Edinburgh so it was a five-year course altogether before we got the the degree
0: and then you you went off to the Harriet Watt University.
1: The Edinburgh College of Arts was basically the home for the Harriet Watt University Landscape Architecture course. So after after that, I got a job locally in in Edinburgh with. Mm-hmm. Uh, a guy who just literally sat up in his spare bedroom and he then moved off down south he eventually moved to Bath and come back to that but I just couldn't afford to to do that and I I was looking around for a job and I I found one in Qatar which is in the Middle East by that time I was I was married with with a, a little child and we were desperately needed a bit more money than I could get in the UK so off we went to Qatar at the time of the Iraq-Iran War was going on, and it was all very strange, I have to say, but for me, professionally, it was just an extraordinary experience to be taken into an entirely different culture, given huge responsibility, and got lots and lots of things designed and built in, in, over a short period of time.
0: You say you, you were married by then, and you had a child. Yes,
1: they, we were all out there. It wasn't that the best much? life for her and, the, and and Sam at the time, yeah. I have to say. But uh, and it was it was one of those places where you it was very long days in terms of work, and the weekends were just Saturday. You worked on the Sunday. But, you know, personally, it was it was very rewarding in in from a professional sense.
0: You were there for how long? Uh, I was there for three years. So you came back. And you worked for Nicholas Pearson Associates that's correct, in yes. Bath in nineteen eighty
1: six, I think. Yeah, that's that's right. Um, Bath,
0: Bath becomes a very important place for you, as as we will no doubt talk about a little later. How did you come to get that job, having, you know, been so far away?
1: Nicholas was the person I, I had that little short time with in Edinburgh. He was a guy who, who moved to Bath just yeah. before I went to, to Qatar. Um, so I'd I'd kept in touch and you know he appreciated what I did Mm. and after three years you know sort of intensive uh, training I guess in in Qatar he offered me a uh, a position which by that time it was great I could afford to to move back to the UK and it it sort of allowed us to settle.
0: And you were with him for quite some time sort of probably what nine years or something like that? Nine,
1: ten years yeah absolutely yeah Yeah. it was a long time.
0: So is that where you blossomed? really in terms of having a a lot of it's
1: interesting term blossom I think it's where I discovered what I'm really interested in and that's partially because some of the work that Nicholas and his team were doing was work that I wasn't interested in at all right and so I decided I was going on a mission to to try and sort of make contact with some interesting architects and engineers, and see if I could get involved with some of their projects. So I, I, I did that sort of thing. Where I, fortunately, I, I knew some local people, like Peter Clegg, for instance. Oh yeah, yeah. He he was a great supporter at that time. He he got me involved in some really interesting projects, and we began to develop. You know, Peter and I—we developed a really interest, lots of interesting thoughts about how what is a sustainable design for for the built environment? Because uh, he was pioneering, architectural solutions, and I was trying to do the equivalent of the landscape. That was really interesting. But I, meanwhile, I was off writing and contacting various big practices like Richard Rogers Partnership at the time. I sort of blanked my way in there a little bit. I just sort of asked, I rang them up and said, "Can I speak to?" One of your architects is dealing with sort of environmental strategies for architecture, and uh, I got speaking to this guy called Andrew Wright, who was there at the time, and got to meet him. And then he said, "Well, why don't you join us on this competition?" And you know, so I did that. So we did a competition in 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 uh, Majorca, which was fantastic. It was called Park Bit. and it was it set the scene in a way for lots of the things I've done since, which was really holistic, integrated planning of systems and then coming right through to design of, of spaces and working very closely with Richard Rogers himself and, and his team. So that, that just working with Peter and Richard then went on to allow me to to sort of work with, with lots of other really interesting people, which eventually triggered me thinking I can I want to go and do this on my own now.
0: <laughs> that was a big moment, wasn't it? Because you you started your own practice what in your late 30s uh
1: yes i forget yes it yeah, was I think, something like that. yeah i think you were yeah.
0: 39 so tell me about those beginnings because they're always uh, interesting how people start where did you operate from
1: well i operated from home from from uh, spare room i well, work from the dining room so it was one of those chaotic because by that time his wife and two kids and the, the, the dining room had to transform <laughs> at least twice a day into something else but I think just before I I'd explain some of that, there's one other story that I think is important, personally, which yeah. was, you know, what makes you decide to sort of go on your What gives you the confidence? So I knew that, you know, with working with Peter and Richard and, and others, that, you know, I could have that dialogue with, with architects. But I just wanted to see, you know, what did people think about me as a, as a landscape architect? So it's one of those things I wrote to Sir Geoffrey Jellicoe, who was um, this eminent landscape architect. Yes, and absolutely. And he was in his 90s.
0: My goodness.
1: And I went to see him at his place at High Point, And he was a delight. I showed him my work and he wrote the most beautiful little letter back saying, this, your work is stunning. it must be published. You know, it's just such a sort of a boost to do that.
0: Absolutely, yeah, but al-
1: but also to see how he worked actually as well, thinking oh, my goodness this, is, this this is how you do it you know he had' a, this very obviously the high point a very modernist building uh, over design yeah chosen and all the rest of it, and he had this tiny little room where he worked where one wall was just absolutely covered in sort of twentieth century paintings by the, the likes of clay and Sutherland and you know all sorts of yeah. really fantastic people, and he just sat next to there. So this is my electricity supply. <laughs> then he had the view out into the grounds the other way, and I thought, how yeah, wonderful! That's what I'd like to do, something like that. And all his hand drawing, you know, his lovely style, just free hand drawing. So you know, another big influence I think
0: on me personally. Did you actually do physical drawing then for your ideas? And in fact, do you still do that? Because I know so much now is is created digitally. Um, because it's so incredible. I mean, looking at your website and seeing a lot of those um, um, digital presentations of the various projects that you've been involved with is staggering. Those fly-through things, you know, you—it's yeah. Yeah. almost quite often impossible to determine what's real and what's not.
1: No, I, I agree, but I, I can confirm that I do nothing other than draw by hand on, on paper and flimsy bits of envelopes and yes. everything else that I've always done, and. It's, Sometimes that gets translated magically into other formats. <laughs>
0: How many people did you have with you at the very start? It would have been you, or and a couple of people.
1: Yeah, I I, I launched into my practice, and, and on with, with the help of Peter, um, I was mm. introduced to the clients at the Earth Centre Project in Doncaster.
0: Oh. Um, I remember that I actually went to that for some reason I can't uh, uh, remember. It was well at the time it was just a series of slag heat Yes. and then a little office sort of a production yeah. office. But it, I saw the original, you know, drawings for it and uh, d- that did get built, didn't
1: it? Yes, definitely. Yeah. No, so that was that was my, you know, from from out of nowhere. That was that my was, first big thing. Wow. Project. And, uh, and you know, miraculously, they—you they, know—it was this enormous sort of restoration job for a for a, 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 as you say, a derelict colliery. Yes. So the Earth Centre was like a testbed for lots of ideas about how do you do interesting in ecological design for for landscapes. So it was it was like a playground in many respects in terms of the core areas
0: and and of course work, re- reclaiming something yes. that was yeah. that had been destroyed basically.
1: Yeah. So. The, you know, we created effect, this, this rich ex- series of experiences at the heart of it. And then the wider site, which was, you know, a significant area, was restored into a massive country park, which is now really lush and beautiful place. Really?
0: Well, I world. saw it, as I say, in its raw state. Was that part of the Millennium? The yes,
1: year? it was one of the Millennium that's Projects. Why. Yeah. Okay, yeah, that's yeah. Yeah. why. Okay, that's probably why,
0: because I was working on a Millennium Project, I think. Right. How funny.
1: I mean, it's an opportunity to work with amazing people. Yeah. Um, from different parts of the world, but architects like Future Systems at the time, yes. Kapliki yeah. and Will Alsop, and yeah. obviously Peter Clegg and and others, other really interesting designers. So once again, it just opened up perspectives of what's possible. And you know, as a project, and what it what it tried to do was so ahead of its get, its time.
0: <laughs> so that was it. Was, would you say that was really a, a, a significant springboard for you?
1: Yes. Because we basically had delivered something new. Yeah. Compared to what lots of other landscape was going on in, in the UK and in other parts of the world. And with a strong environmental narrative. And there were certain architects who were really trying to push that on their project. So we ended up working with Bennett's Associates on Wessex Water Operations Centre in here in Bath, mm-hmm. which is still I think one of the you know, most advanced sort of office complexes environmentally hus- holistic that's been done in the last 20 odd years um, and we worked with Grimshaw's we did the Rolls-Royce factory down at Chichester and Ted Cullinan on, on a number of projects and of course working with Peter and like Bradley Studios on, on things like Cordia it's quite significant landmark projects I think in the UK that across different sectors
0: tell me then about the how the company evolved when did you move from your home find yourself a space and how did it expand
1: yes the earth center just about did us in as a, in terms of the home it certainly it sort of unpicked my marriage i guess to a certain extent in terms of you know the amount of time i had to spend on on that plus yes. the house was taken over by we had about five people in the in the dining room working away on bits of drawing boards and the dining room table and having to sort of sit out on the terrace outside with a temporary canopy (laughs) if it wasn't raining. And we were using, um, you know, CAD was really just coming in properly and we were hopeless, we didn't have a clue. So we, we had this guy... He would come in every night from Bristol. It was basically a freelance CAD technician. We'd give him a bundle of sort of hand-drawn sketches and drawings and he'd take them away overnight and try and come back the next morning with, with something that we could then tra- transfer to,
0: uh, to the, some of the other consultants.
1: It was, it was uh, extraordinary. I don't know how we did
0: it, to be honest. You're now substantial size, looking again at your website, which I have to say is very beautiful. And I was very intrigued by those very organic, plant like whatever they are at the beginning right sort of look weirdly like some of the bbc two logos that are currently yeah, on. No, very it's... very organic terrific way of um, of of getting people you know pulled into the site i think it's yeah. great
1: well it's it's where you it, it's recognizing that there are things that you can't do yourself and and actually you know we got um supple studio to help us with the rebranding I don't know if you know I do Jimmy yes. ML, yeah yes. and, and his team and then he brought in Fitzroy Hawk who did that sort of the animated sequence who, yes they, they were doing stuff all over the world amazing things if you want to, if you want to project that you do quality work you've got to project quality work in, in every aspect of what I you're doing
0: couldn't agree more and so many companies overlook often those things yeah you know if you if you believe in a, a, a level that you would work to yourself, then everything that you are pulling in to collaborate with or to express yourself needs to be done by the very same kind of mentality. Otherwise, Absolutely. it's going to, yes. it's not going to work. Well, let's talk now about some of your really exciting project. And I've got to bring up the Singapore Bay South, which you've described as a once-in-a-lifetime dream project. And looking at it, and I know it's... Um, it took a long time. It it was over a I think a six year period, and I think you're still working on the the broader site. It's an yeah. amazing. And what I wanted to ask you this is where I'm interested because in your relationship with the, if you like the the built architectural side rather than you know, the area that you're specifically involved with. I'm interested in, in, in these um, large sort of ligatures, you know.
1: Are we talking of the, the super trees? The, the super tall, trees, yes, exactly. The tall super tree structures,
0: yeah, yeah. yeah. The, so, so how, just take me through the con- concept. We worked
1: with Wilkinson Architects and we, a number of other UK um, consultants.
0: I'm so, very interested to know the story. It l- looks like you're going to another planet, really does i mean you mentioned earlier about uh you know your early inspirations and illustrations and i think that's a and you you even mentioned you know otherworldly i mean you've certainly created another world which i i certainly would love to see it looks terrific
1: yeah no it's well i mean it, i always pinch myself in terms of my goodness is that out? Um, but, the, but the story, of the journey, I mean, it's so, mm. it's so fascinating as well. I mean, so we, we, we were in Bath, we had probably about 10 people in our office, maybe fewer actually, and I took a call from somebody from the National Parks Board in Singapore. And they said, Well, we're doing this big competition, and we're sort of sending some teams out to various places, and we'd like to, to meet you and see whether you'd be interested to contribute to the competition. Uh, So this is back in 2005. And uh, so... I went along. I had no idea where they got my name from or our name from. Met the guy, Kenneth, who is now the CEO of the Ministry of National Development. They were very keen that we assemble the team, you know, get a good architect, get some good engineers on board and submit a proposal to them. It was an open expression of interest. So we did that. We got onto a short, no, it was a long list of of, uh, competitors. And we'd never been on a long list for anything no, not least, a, an international competition. So we we had people like Norman Foster was in there with and Porter and Will Olsopp was there with Martha Schwartz, and there were American teams and Japanese teams, mm-hmm. and so it was complete, you know, complete naivety from my. I think, mean, what? How do you do this? What's going on here? We we just went for it. We just thought we're going to try this, you know, do the very best. And ideas started to generate the super trees idea came from from me thinking that actually this is there are two big sort of conservatories glass houses that were required by the client as part of the competition and i thought there's a big danger that that's just going to be the focus everybody's just going to look at those and say that's what this project is about the rest of it is just a garden it's just got some nice plants and I thought this project needs something that is gives a landscape focus, not an architectural focus. And hence the the idea of the, the super trees grew up. Also because I felt, you know, the, the vision for, from the client was we want something that's really high impact right from the beginning. And, mm. you know, we can't wait five, ten years for lots of plants to grow up. So, yes, let's, let's propose at the time, I think, about 30 odd large tree structures up to 50 metres high. Some of them you could climb in and walk around and some had... A, restaurants and they basically become this mini ecosystem and they demonstrate lots of environmental principles and solar Mm. power collection and rainwater harvesting and shade and biodiversity habitat and uh, they became part of the a strong part of the, the the proposal
0: so did you in competition did you have a model did you how did you present it
1: we had to make a model and at the time the the competition wasn't just for the bay south side which we built it was for it wasn't just uh, a model for the 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 bit that we got built it was for the much wider area yes and they they wanted a a one to 500 scale model if i remember which is really tricky scale for for landscape because you know um trees you know it just all becomes very flat so we Once again, we just thought we're just going to go wild here and do something interesting. So we made this acrylic model, which was incredibly colourful, very beautiful. I think it was network model makers that were doing it. So that had its own distinction right from the start. And the other thing we did was to make a a film. We had to make a little movie. So rather than just... And at the time, you know, it was becoming standard for, for... uh, CGIs and fly-throughs mm, yep. just taking architectural models and just trying to sort of animate how they worked. But we thought that's not good enough. So we we knew Squint Opera. I don't know if you if you remember Squint Opera. Who, no. They they came out of well, basically one of the the, f- the founders was Will Alsop's son. Ah, right. Okay. And um, they've been doing some great, you know, really fun movies for Urban Splash and and people other mm-hmm. developers. And we got them to come in and, and give a proper narrative, create a storyline, create some unique uh, animations, but stitch it together with our drawings, my hand drawings, and other colleagues' drawings, and just create a, a, an amazing story. So it wasn't it wasn't just his a fly through some spaces. It's you know, trying to be much more evocative. And it was very powerful.
0: The story itself, which I, you know, storytelling is, is a very effective way of presenting. You know, it certainly became a much more interesting way to present, to create some sort of story. It's that based, I know a little bit about Singapore, and it's an incredible country that's that's changed so radically in relatively short space of time from Really, what was a dreadful place? Uh, and they seem to be leading in the world in, in in using their spaces really effectively for people. Even though the skyline is absolutely packed with skyscrapers, it's incredible, isn't it? So the presentation was held where in this country, or did you have to go?
1: No, it was in it was it was in Singapore. Yes. Oh wow! Had to
0: uh, have to take lug 50%. this model across the world. Yeah,
1: we had to ship it across the world. Um, we had to go and set it up, and then we had to. Attend a presentation, and you know, it was you know, quite intensive. My <laughs> bad some interesting questions basically i mean what was great i mean we they the the the, the client uh, made a quick decision and often that isn't the case they made a quick decision got in touch with us, said andrew you've won the competition <laughs> well actually they sent it but sent it a facts and then very shortly afterwards they said we're coming to we're coming to london we want to meet you so uh dr tan who was basically the leader of the project came over with his team sat us in a room this is myself and then the paul baker from the architect's Patrick Bellew, actually, and Neil Oh, Thomas. yeah, yeah, yeah God. All, you
0: know, S- Small world, isn't it? <laughs> small world.
1: All geniuses. It's all brilliant. Anyway, we was all sat in this, this room, and, and Dr. Sun said, well, we're going to get you to design and deliver this project, and we want it done in, you know, whatever it was, five, six years. Yeah. And we all just sat there and sort of gasped, because, we, <laughs> my goodness, this is amazing. And the next thing we had to do was to to then go back to Singapore and present the project to the whole of the Singapore cabinet, including Lee Kuan Yew as well. Wow! In in the room, which
0: that must have been hairy.
1: It was. Well, it was. <laughs> I think it's more hairy for Dr Tan and his team because yes. basically their whole project, depending on whether they the the, the cabinet approved it. Um, oh right. But yeah, it was great. I mean, it, you know, a unique experience really was with, you know, Lecon, you basically asking questions like how do you clean the glass? But That's the,
0: actually a very good uh, point. I, I tell you why <laughs> because do you know in Wales they have this dome yes that was yeah. part of it well my brother lives not far from that <clears throat> and just a few years after it was opened i went to we went along to have a look and we couldn't believe how filthy the glass was and also the eternal internal structure was beginning to rust and we chatted to a chap there <clears throat> and he said problem is there is no aftercare budget so basically it just doesn't i can't afford to have it clean it's one of those millennium projects that yeah. cer- certain things got left out of the mip. absolutely just very sad
1: there's a degree of that also in singapore but they it's such a it's an icon and you know the tourist draw that the money is spent on looking after the the gardens and the structures
0: i think it's getting 12 million visitors a year
1: uh yeah i mean pre pre pre-pandemic it was it was getting up towards 15 million Uh, they've had they've had over 90 million people since it opened in 2012 Um, which is really is astonishing and so they you know they're they're in a situation where they they need to sort of think about okay we how do we refresh this can we add things how do we how do we start to connect it um in in a wider sense so there's some really interesting you know next phase projects starting to emerge
0: well i've I've seen plans of you know that entire run which is um, a vast area isn't it that, that they are developing there across that well they've got
1: the new well basically Lee Kuan Yew sort of fa- founders memorial uh project is just literally on the other side of the water the guns by the Bay Glass Houses which will be connected by a new bridge structure which is a competition that we enter we, we don't know who's who's won but that was a really interesting competition recently this whole area is is Singapore's next development zone it was all reclaimed land. And so this is now the heart of what will be a new, hopefully vibrant residential commercial zone for Singapore.
0: Well, just staying on Singapore for the moment, and I, I know you've done other projects there, but I noticed they're obviously beginning to realise, well, not just, probably way advanced mm. of many people, you know the greening of the buildings themselves is important to you know reduce the the carbon footprint of those buildings because the the heat they all generate collectively must make life quite unpleasant. but with the greening it obviously brings it's sort of like the antidote, isn't it really to concrete build if you have levels of gardens and Uh, canopies and so forth which they seem to be now doing it's it's
1: it's policy i mean this is one of the the really interesting things of singapore and as you say they've been ahead of the curve on on this aspect particularly i don't know how many years but maybe 15 20 years they've been promoting greening of buildings various reasons but as you say one of them is temperature one of them is just creating a, a richer greener environment for people and and habitat there is a requirement for every new development to deliver a certain quantity of greening and sometimes it is as simple as saying you need to replace the footprint of this site with the equivalent area of green space and sometimes it's more sophisticated than that in terms of types of trees and areas of different habitats but yeah it's uh, i mean the the sort of green policy framework for singapore i think is very impressive
0: and you're doing Um, something called sentosa what 600 <clears throat> hectare projects and you're working with Wilkinson Air is, is
1: yes that's right I where, mean,
0: has that started
1: it, it was a master plan study which mm-hmm. we first did we, we've, we've had two bites of the cherry and actually on the third bite at the moment so Sentosa is the, it's the leisure part of Singapore it's a little island that's just off the Singapore mainland which is connected by a causeway but it's traditionally been the place where Singaporeans would go and Sit on the beach and have a bit of downtime. Right. It's now got a Universal Studios and it's got all sorts of the you know big sort of theme park type facilities. But the Sentosa Development Corporation were, were looking for well, what's our plan for the next twenty thirty years? What do we do to sort of keep our status in the international market? What do we do to attract more Singaporeans? So, and, and what do we do in the context of Singapore's overarching concept which is they want to be seen as a city in a garden a city in nature it was a city in a garden now it's a city in nature so how do we how do we rewild this sort of leisure world and so yes we've been working with with Wilkinsner and and others on on a strategy for that which included proposals for another island, Pula Brani which is where the existing Singapore container port is you know, that port is oh, the yes. second busiest
0: in the world. I've seen photographs of that. That's absolutely massive, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. So,
1: they, t- just because it's in a prime location, the government has said, OK, we're going to move that and then we're going to sort of open up, you know, this, we t- take back the island and create the most wonderful waterfront environment for new development but once again thinking 20 30 years ahead in terms of what that environment will be so meanwhile they've been building a new port just down around the corner you know compared to what goes on in this country it's quite extraordinary to see how you know there is that sort of forward planning and strategic thinking about how we how they need to sort things out
0: interestingly you you know you just mentioned there the time scale and so forth i'm assuming that the project with the super trees that you created which looks incredibly dense now with planting Not just the trees, but the whole area with walkways Mm -hmm. and so forth. I I assume the difference between the traditional going back, you know, to past centuries when landscape design and architecture was really done for the extremely rich people or the monarchy and so forth to really demonstrate their wealth and and power and control. But nevertheless, the planting took years to, you you know, many of the the designers, architects would, would have been long dead before... They would see the fruit, true fruition of their work, but today, with these large nurseries that have these architectural plants, you you can get pretty much up to speed relatively quickly in terms of what, how it used to be. That must make it a, a lot more satisfying <clears throat> once, once you go back after a couple of years to look at what you've done.
1: I mean, Singapore has one of those climates where, uh, as Doc Tan says, if you just put
0: something in in the ground, it'll grow madly oh yeah i guess so humidity isn't it and, and, yeah, just yeah. The,
1: i mean we had you know the we had these uh, the super trees 20 30 50 meters high and you know within five years you had climbers which would typically be, be lianas and things that grow in the rainforest they were growing to the top you know it was yeah, just extraordinary um, the speed that they grew up
0: going back to that you, you created the sort of the the, the the ligature structure that would take all of that growth and you'd obviously calculated exactly how that would work because you're presumably working with plants from that part of the world
1: well there are two parts to that answer one is the the structures themselves were incredibly sophisticated Mm. in terms of the design and neil thomas was at the heart of actually working through how do we create a the, the structure for for these and and his team and working you know doing some really interesting computer modeling with specialist from bath university and then on top of that we had the plant okay how are we going to sort of create planted character i was very keen that every tree every super tree had its own planted identity and some of them felt like a family and others were entirely sort of unique and different and so there were different types of plants and you know one of the things that the client dr tan was keen to do was was to introduce plants into singapore that people wouldn't normally see there and so some of the trees are actually covered in bromeliads and Hmm. and the likes which were basically bought over from florida
0: oh right okay they
1: they bought a whole farm (laughs) so (laughs) (laughs) we're gonna we're gonna take all of your bromeliads and your chelantias and 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 the likes and we'll 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 bring them to our super trees i bet Um, the nursery
0: is delighted with that uh, absolutely yeah
1: absolutely (laughs) i think he sold out for that So i'm I'm retiring now (laughs) good
0: god (laughs) Yeah.
1: yeah um but it was, you know, that, the procurement, I mean, coming back to the procurement of, of plant material and from different parts of the world, because this is a botanic garden. Um, it's, got, it's got plants from every continent, apart from the, you know, the Antarctic and, and the likes. And some of those plants have been brought halfway around the world. You know, massive great baobab trees from, from Africa, amazing palms from different parts of the world and it, that's one of the things that you don't appreciate at first glance is just the richness of of species that are there. And you know, do you it, spend
0: a, a lot of your year there when you're working on projects? Do You have no. to go out for blocks of time to I mean because I think you've got offices there, haven't you? You've got
1: Yes, we've got we've got an office in in Singapore, yeah, with about 20 people, which means that I don't need to go quite so often. Right. During the gardens and and the post-establishment period, you know, I was there, but, you know, half a dozen times a year and you go for a week Mm. or two weeks or something like that. I have been once in three years, really, given since the pandemic. But um, I am going there again in a couple of weeks. And going to the gardens talking to the team uh, the manager there what, the, what are they what do they do next well
0: let, let's to... switch to something far smaller and sort of more intimate but i think really beautiful and that was super bloom the project that you did i think last year wasn't it Tw- yes yeah um, at the tower of london and i know yeah. a couple of years before they had a a, a designer produce a commemoration of the First World War or whatever it was, I can't remember. But you created this wonderful, way of this sort of seemingly natural, wild landscape that you could walk through, which I'm sure was, I'm, sadly, I wasn't able to go because it, I, I'm stuck down in Dorset. But that looked to be really well loved by people. And I think what, what's interesting about you know anything to do with gardens or landscapes is that people do really, really relate to it. They feel something i mean even something as simple as going to the rose garden in in regent's park it's very traditional but hordes of people just to be there to smell the plants and look at them so yeah. you know modest things and these much larger dramatic things that you're doing really touch people and i i think it's rather like music you know and of course if you think historically so many artists and composers have been inspired by the landscape so it is very important and it's so good to see that countries now are beginning to understand that not only is it good for the planet and and needed but it's great for people so tell me about that little project
1: super bloom came about but the historical palaces they wanted to celebrate the Queen's Platinum Jubilee, which is obviously, of course, year. yes, and they they ran us a, a, a small competition, and we were invited to come up with some ideas. And then the whole sort of COVID world hits, and ambitions in terms of what that well, basically their their income dried up. And so their the funding model for what they thought they'd be able to deliver sort of had to change. So we, we went away from our original plans were absolutely ridiculously um, over the top. What were you we're, going to do?
0: That's well, interesting. Well,
1: We were going to create a sort of like a temporary forest in there. For a forest from... They, they, <laughs> they originally had this theme of, of Commonwealth, you know, celebrating the Commonwealth. And, uh, you know, we, we were going to introduce sort of themes of, of Commonwealth countries and different sort of aspects of... of woodlands and trees and different habitats completely impossible to to to, to cost really and uh, to fund uh, post covid so we we one of our team was nigel dunnett and uh, mm-hmm. yeah. obviously his reputation comes from helping on the uh, olympic park and the, yeah. the olympics we just thought well actually let's make this really simple let's just use annual seeds create a wonderful dramatic display of flowers which runs through the summer and and, and create the infrastructure for people to walk through there and experience different views different aspects different sounds as they as they move through it and it was fantastic I mean because once again we, we got to work with some really interesting people the, the client team was really fantastic just helping us set up. We got big slide that the National Trust gave us they'd had it at Clifton House and sort of six meter high you know slide into the moat. For, for people, which is great fun. Um, <laughs> we had Erna Cooper, who did this beautiful soundtrack. Sound, you know, oh,
0: you had sound design, did you? you yeah, so that was... You had them- you know,
1: Every, every side of the moat had its own sort of thing going on.
0: And what sort of sound was it? Was it just ambient or was it...
1: Yeah, it was quite ambient. It was all yeah. composed by Alan, and it's this very beautiful, just simple jazz nice. sound as you walk through. And it had quite a, quite a big bassy section to it, which the, the residents who live in the tower were a bit concerned about, <laughs> as you can imagine.
0: <laughs> well they would have been prisoners <laughs>
1: ago. Yeah, absolutely and then you know various artists and sculptors just animated moments along there but so what what uh, what it was intended to be a relatively temporary thing just for one year seeing how it's changed the moat the client is now looking at how do they translate that into a a longer term transformation of the moat which delivers a year round experience delivers a really nice experience for people but also really valuable habitat for for biodiversity at the heart of london and you know it's a fascinating story which we'll have to come back to another time i think yes
0: it really really
1: is really is lovely yeah great story
0: well, moving on to a slightly bigger project, you're you're working on the Curzon Street Station in Birmingham, which is the the new intercity station to be built since the nineteenth century, and I think it's, it opens in two thousand and twenty six, which is not very long. So, yeah, when-
1: I, I, I'm not enti- I'm not entirely sure what the what the the new program is no. what we've we've been working with grimshaw the architects get to this point with the hs2 uh, team we probably won't be taking it to the next stage right but the, the way procurement happens with these projects you know different stages get done in different ways but what we've done is to route or land the station in, a, in effectively into a park so rather than coming into a busy sort of urban setting, you you come into a green, a world of green place where you know there's, it's it's. Uh,
0: it will of, be the most beautiful station, I think, <clears throat> simply because of being, as you say, literally coming into a park. Yeah. It, it just looked stunning, I think, when it's when you consider all the stations we have. I don't I don't know of any that have lots of trees and planting mm. around them. Really, I don't think we do, do we?
1: Not quite in the same no. way. I mean. Waverley Station in Edinburgh is in, you know, part of a park. Yeah. But you're right. I mean, Euston Station probably used to feel like you were going through a garden into the station, but not quite so much these days.
0: Well, then switching to something really quite different is your Madagascar project. You're helping to protect and save Madagascar's endangered blue-eyed black lemur. How did you get involved with that?
1: Well, this this possibly links, and it'd be nice to talk about be really nice to talk about the forest of imagination in this context. What I was keen to do for the practice was to to sort of create a forum where we could actually be a little bit more experimental with, with some of the ideas that we do in terms of how do you reconnect people to nature, which gave rise to forest of imagination, which is now in its 10th year uh, and one year I decided it'd be really good to sort of theme this around Madagascar and to involve Bristol Zoo because I knew they had this research project in Madagascar, as you say blue we were black lemurs so I got them involved and they became part of the event, this is, I can't remember 2016 I think, something like that uh, where we took over all lots of areas around the abbey in Bath and just inhabited with, with lemurs and all sorts of weird and wonderful things Anyway, so I got to know the director of conservation at Bristol Zoo and they were saying that they basically desperately needed to improve their facilities, their field research station in this site. And it was, I think it was our 25th anniversary, no 20th anniversary as a, as a practice. So we decided we'd make a financial contribution to that, but also to help them think about the planning and I, I, s- I spoke to Peter Clegg. Oh, yeah. And he said, yes, I'd love to help do that and be your And they all came on board as a design team offering their services for free. And myself and Peter and my two co-directors in Grand Associates, we went out to Madagascar for uh, for a couple of weeks and uh, just thought this is, oh, this is just fun. What an amazing place. So, you know, this is a tiny little fragment of, of a remnant forest in northwest Madagascar yeah. where you have... They're not entirely sure how many of these lemurs are left in the wild, but it's probably only about a 1,000, and they only live in this particular area. They're one of the few primates with really pure blue eyes, and the habitat they inhabit is... Full of other extraordinary species. So, by contributing to the research and conservation story, hoping that they can begin to start to rebuild and restore and rewild the environment around this and, area.
0: And why is the environment in such bad shape? Well, it's I mean, over years, or something? it's
1: yeah, it's basically the the forests have been felled. Yeah, um, the the local villagers they sort of tend to have a slash and burn sort of approach to producing crops. So they'll they'll chop down a bit of woodland they'll maybe produce two crops of rice or something on that and then they'd have to move to somewhere else so part of the project is is working with the local communities to find different ways of of producing their food and you know different sort of mechanisms and agreeing principles It's, it's it's a wonderful integrated story about how do we share this planet with other species whilst creating and enhancing the quality of life for ourselves.
0: And is it is it yeah. a, it's an ongoing part of, of this project that you referred to at the beginning. The field
1: station is, is, is it will be finished later this year, right? And 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 the the idea is that basically it becomes a, a a home in the forest for PhD students from around the world who can study the different species, and at the same time, uh, Madagascar uh, students can share that time with them. So that you, you know, it's a really integrated approach. So I hope, but I think next year there'll be a, an opening and planning for a next stage
0: but is another, this something that you have stage. funded or you have got the funding for we
1: we as a company we have part funded yes you know ba- yeah we've part funded and the bristol zoo they've managed to find funds from other right. places but all of the design and the uh, and the support work has been done for free by ourselves Philip club Bradley studios and bureau yeah. happel
0: Oh, great. That's terrific. Funnily enough, yes, I got to thinking about what we're s- slowly coming to terms with now is that, you know, how greening cities and, you know, bringing more trees in, you know, is now on everyone's mind and, you know, gets through to some politicians. But I was looking up history of, of landscape architecture and design and so forth. And of course, it goes way, way back to the Greeks and Romans yeah. and yeah, so yeah. forth. But I suddenly thought to myself, bandstands, you know, that are always in the middle <clears> of these little <throat> Little gardens and it turns out that the bandstands and public parks were a result of the industrial revolution because the conditions in most of the kind of urban areas were so incredibly dirty and you know people are having all sorts of health issues and so it was it was agreed by the um, the authorities that they would create these little green spaces where the public could relax hence the hence the little uh, you know bandstands in the middle so it 's great that there, there are people like you that are
1: Responding to crises, isn't it? That's that's, yeah, that's, that's that's the that's the issue. You know, all those sort of environmental yeah, improvements and park creation was, as you say, because of the squalid conditions of of cities and how to, to to create a healthier environment.
0: Now, you've you've got a couple of sons and and two daughters, haven't you? From yes, two yeah. marriages yeah. have have the sons followed in your footsteps or your daughters or maybe they're too young i don't know
1: no my sons they're they're basically they have a sort of design aspect to it but one my oldest son is into computing and and animation and games my youngest is sort of he studied illustration and animation so but he's sort of gone away from that and he wanders from different disciplines to different disciplines but yeah my daughters i mean they're You know, Lily and Kiki, they're 16 and Kiki's 50 tomorrow. Oh, wow. They're they're currently in New Zealand.
0: I I stayed with a friend who has a place in Marlborough, in Marlborough Sounds. Right. And that's exactly like the sort of place that you create. His house is in the middle of a sort of tropical forest, right on the, you know, on the water side. It's absolutely stunning. I mean, I found... uh, New Zealand, certainly um, Malbrough, which is where I was staying, um, just like 1950s Britain in yes. some yeah, weird sort absolutely. of way.
1: Yeah, lots of bungalows and, and lots of bungalows.
0: Of... I wondered if you've got any pearls of wisdom that you could pass on to any young sort of student wishing to follow in your footsteps. I'm sure your work has generated a lot more excitement in the world of landscape architecture. You know, I'm sure it's perked up a lot of kids to think wow this is fantastic so I mean the way you started was seems to me with just hard work and passion and, and, an, and an image of what you wanted to do like, with, like so many creative people that are driven
1: I think it's, it's quite a hard work I mean for me I think the key thing that I think I like to see from students and graduates is that they have a sense of who they are when they when they when they're coming out of the universities. It's a time to, to sort of test different aspects of who you are and what you're interested in and so that you come out with you know a, a sense of purpose. I, I, I want to think about this aspect of, of design or creativity. Um, and I'm really you know, are you interested in, in environmental narratives and and exploring that and testing that. Or is, are you interested in something quite different? Is it about human psychology and how people respond to places? It's just, I think, that's for me, that's a, an important part of understanding students' personalities, really, it's, it's, rather than just being, I could, you know, g- generic. Because I think that's one of the interesting things about design, and it goes across all the disciplines, is that it's very easy to fall into a sort of generic approach to things. And, and and in landscape, it's really important not to do that. You've got to find what's right for the place, for the geology, for the climate, for the you know the biodiversity, and and how people will use that place. So diversity is really important, and and ability to to think in that way.
0: And, and I guess it's very much about now rather than the past. I mean, obviously, a lot of landscaping does have its connection firmly in the past for, for a lot of companies, nothing like your companies, but I'm thinking there are many, many small, you know, doing spaces no bigger than, you know, an exceptionally large garden, nothing more than that. And it tends to be more often than not quite predictable or alternatively incredibly minimalist with very little in between.
1: yes and that's you know that that, that's that's why you know gardens are i find incredibly challenging yes how you respond to them
0: andrew grant thank you very much for sharing your rdi insights it was really lovely to talk to you
1: thanks mike that's great